All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. That is Mark 16, 1 through 8. And this morning, we come to the final sermon in our study of Mark's Gospel. We began in April of 2019. We've taken breaks here and there, some of them lengthy, but now we have finally come to the end. And if you were wondering, uh, this is the 102nd sermon I have preached from this book. Uh, and, and though I'm, I'm sure we're all excited to turn to other portions of the Word of God, um, I, I think that we've all seen what, what a joy it is to take our time and, and go through a book, uh, particularly to take our time and meditate upon the earthly ministry of Christ. And I am grateful to God for everything that we've learned from Mark's gospel. I know that I'm not the same person that I was whenever we began this three years ago because God has been faithful to use his word to change us. Uh, but right off the bat, I have to address something. Uh, I am ending our study in verse 8, but in our Bibles, there are more verses contained within a set of brackets, right? Verses 9 through 20. So uh, some of you are probably asking the question, why am I not going to preach those verses? Why am I not going to preach verses 9 through 20? Now, let me try to briefly explain a complicated and difficult situation. Basically, in light of internal evidence in Mark and external historical evidence, many scholars believe that verses 9 through 20 are probably a second century scribal addition to the Gospel of Mark. That is, they are not original to Mark. Mark didn't write them. Instead, he ended his book in verse 8, or rather with verse 8. And there are some good reasons to take that position. Uh, as our ESV Bible indicates, uh, those verses are not found in some of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark that we possess. More than that, uh, some of the earliest writings about Mark don't mention those verses. Still more, we read, and this one actually, this one got me, um, or made me think. We read in church fathers from the 300s that some very influential men in the church believed that Mark ended in verse 8. One of them went so far as to say our best and most reliable manuscripts end where verse 8 ends, although they didn't have verses back then, like they wasn't numbered like that, but you understand what I'm saying. They would say that the best manuscripts they had ended where verse 8 is, even though they were aware of the longer ending. So they knew other manuscripts had verses 9 through 20, and they said, yeah, we don't think those, those are the best. So verses 9 through 20 have been disputed since the early days of the church. Uh, and from uh, explicitly clear manuscript evidence, both Greek and other languages, um, not all Christians had verses 9 through 20 in their copies of Mark. That is a historical fact. Not all Christians in the early church had the longer ending of Mark. Beyond that, there's some stuff in verses 9 through 20 that make it seem different from the rest of Mark. From what I've read, in the Greek, there are new words and phrasing that don't occur in the rest of the gospel. Uh, and there is a, is quite a few, right? And it seems like the style has changed, as if there might be a different author. And again, it's not just a couple of things here and there, but kind of packed throughout verses 9 through 20, there's new words and new phrases that you don't find anywhere else in Mark's gospel. So again, it seems like a style has changed or maybe there's a new author. So this makes many believe that a scribe inserted verses 9 through 20 at some point after the apostolic era. Now that makes us ask a question, why would a scribe do that? <laughs> right, why would a scribe do that? Um, well, as you're going to find out in a minute, Mark ends really abruptly and it ends on a note of fear and that feels odd. 
especially when you compare how Mark ends to how the other Gospels end. The other Gospels, a much brighter end, a more explicitly bright note, and with resurrection appearances and even commissionings from Christ. So it's not unreasonable to think that a scribe tried to make what he thought was the fuller ending looking at the other Gospel narratives. Or maybe, and I think this is the more pious theory, verses 9 through 20 were maybe put into a margin to give a brief summary of what the other Gospels say at the end, and then over time, things that are in the margins find their way into the text itself. That actually, we know that that happens sometimes, because whenever you have something, what's safer to do? Not write something down that that was in the margin, or just to add everything together? You don't want to lose anything, right? Um, But these are just theories we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that to many, it seems like Mark's Gospel originally ended at verse 8, and some of those arguments are compelling. As Stephen Lawson says, don't worry. If verses 9 through 20 are not original, you have 101% of the Bible. You're not missing anything, right? So that should encourage you. The word has indeed been preserved. Um, But on the other hand, there are counter arguments to some of the things that I've said, and, and they're weighty, worthy of consideration. I don't have time to go through them this morning. Some of them are quite technical, uh, but if you'll trust me, they will make you pause and think. I can point you to some debates. I can point you to some books. On, again, where both sides are hashing it out. Um, more than that, the fact that the majority of Greek manuscripts do contain the longer ending and that it was accepted for centuries by the church is significant, right? theologically significant. Um, what am I getting at with all of this? Well, here it is. This is a complicated issue. <laughs> this is a complicated issue, and I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. I mean, that's just me being as honest as I can. I'm not a text critic. I'm not a textual scholar. Uh, So I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but I think that the safest route is for me to simply end with verse 8. And I say that because I know that verses 1 through 8 are original to Mark's gospel. They are undisputed. They are in every manuscript, but I am not so sure about verses 9 through 20. And I don't want to stand up before you all and say, this is the word of the Lord, unless I know for certain that something is from the Lord. In the same way that even a great theological book like John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, I would not stand up here, read a paragraph from it, and say, thus saith the Lord. I would not be comfortable doing that, even if I believed that what that paragraph said was true. I would be nervous to do that. Um, More than that, it's worth mentioning that nearly everything, almost everything, in verses 9 through 20 can be found somewhere else in the New Testament. So by not preaching the long ending, we're not losing anything doctrinally or theologically for the church. And if verses 9 through 20 are original to Mark, I'm okay with having not preached the entirety of the book personally. That doesn't bother me. Why? Because there are many verses I'm not going to preach in the Bible before I die. I bet money I never preach verse by verse through First and Second Chronicles. I'll bet all my money on that right now. Uh, I have no plans of doing not, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging those books. I'm just saying I'm not, probably not going to do that. So I'm okay with not preaching through every verse if indeed those verses belong in Mark. So then I've decided to end with verse 8 this morning. Uh, but that should not be interpreted as me saying definitively that verses 9 through 20 are not Scripture. I'm simply saying that I don't really know what to think. And because of that, I'm going with what I believe is the safest option for me as a man who will one day give an account for what I stand before you and say. I'd rather not preach some verses of the word of God than declare that something uninspired is the word of God. In matters like these, I personally think that silence is often safer and more pious than speech. But with that out of the way, I am quite excited to preach this final sermon from Mark's gospel.
And that's because our subject this morning is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're essentially having an Easter service this morning. This is the high point of Mark's gospel. This is the main event. Here, our Lord is vindicated. Here, our salvation is demonstrated and it receives its seal from God. Here, we receive every comfort. He is risen. He is alive. Now, many preachers like to use sermons about the resurrection to give an apologetic defense of it. There's a place for that. Uh, I've done it. I'm not doing it today. Uh, I, I assume that most of us, if not all of us here, as I look around, all of us are believers to the best of my knowledge. At least we're all professing believers, so there's nothing to defend. We know and confess that Jesus Christ is alive, so I want to preach a sermon that will encourage you in the risen Lord. And there are many comforts for us to find as we meditate upon the resurrection of Christ. Many comforts. And also a challenge. A challenge to each one of us. And so this morning, I want us to think on what the resurrection says to each one of us. Um, after we walk through the text, we're going to consider some of the things that the resurrection of Christ says. And may God bless us as we meditate on his word, and may he show us the risen Christ. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb... They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather as your people at your word to hear from you. Thank you for the scriptures that show us our sin, our Savior, our rule for living, and our hope for both this life and the life to come. We ask now that you would grant us the ability to receive the word of God with faith. Open our hearts and minds this morning, and by your spirit, make the word effectual to our salvation. Glorify yourself in us as we submit to the word. Make much of yourself this morning as we consider the resurrection of your only son. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So our text picks up the evening after Jesus' burial. Now he was buried on Friday afternoon before sundown. And now in verse 1, Mark says that when the Sabbath was over, which would be sundown on Saturday, probably 6 p.m., Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went and bought spices so that they might go anoint him. That is, so they might go and anoint Jesus. So after sundown... The shops would open for the rest of the evening. So it's a good time for the women to purchase what they need to anoint Jesus. But it's also so late in the day that it's not a good time to go and visit a dark tomb 
and begin the work of anointing. So they must wait in God's providence until the third day, or rather the dawn of the third day. Now a brief word about anointing the body of Jesus. This will be important to one of the points I want to make later. These women, in anointing Jesus, they were planning to cover Christ's face and body with sweet-smelling spices and oil. This was not embalming. This was like how the Egyptians would embalm people. This is not embalming. That's done to preserve the body, but Jews did not do that. Jews did not try to preserve the body. Rather, anointing a body was done simply to show honor, to show respect, and to show love for the deceased. So this is an act of devotion for Christ from these women. They loved him. They loved him. They were his disciples. They're the same women who are mentioned at the cross who had... uh, assisted Jesus in his ministry. They loved him. They were his friends. They were his disciples. Remember that. They were his friends. And this was certainly an intense devotion. Uh, And I don't mean to be crass, but I say that this was an intense devotion because Jesus has been dead since Friday, and Israel is a warm place at this time of year. Surely these women expected his body to have begun to decompose. That's what they expected. But they're going anyway. They don't care. Again, they loved Jesus. They were indeed his disciples. Also, you can see that these women clearly did not expect a resurrection, did they? Not at all. Though he had promised many times that he would be raised from the dead, nobody understood or believed him. I I personally think they just didn't believe him. How hard is it to understand, they will kill me and I will rise on the third day? I think they understood the words coming out of his mouth. I just don't think that they believed him. And that includes these women. They were believers, but they were weak in faith, and so they expected to find the body. But then Mark tells us that early on the first day of the week, on Sunday, by the way, this is why the Sabbath day changed from Saturday to Sunday. Just as God did his work of creation and then rested and made that day a Sabbath, so Christ entered into his rest on the first day of the week after his work of redemption. And that's why the day has changed. But early on the first day of the week, Sunday, the first Lord's Day, the women go to the tomb. But again, they are not expecting a resurrection. Verse 3 tells us this. They were worried about how they would get into the tomb. How are we going to get in? Apparently, none of the disciples would go to them. What a mark against the disciples for their cowardice. The disciples wouldn't go. They have no men to help them move the massive stone. And this would be, like like I I mentioned last week, a, a great millstone kind of a thing, huge. It would take multiple men to move. And in their haste, they seem to have forgotten that this was going to be a problem. This is quite human, right? In their grief and in their hurry to get to the tomb, they don't plan well. But praise God, this was actually no problem. For verse 4 tells us, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. Now Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 through 4 tell us that prior to the women getting there, an angel had descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. Something amazing is going on here. Something amazing is going on. Angels are present. The tomb is opened for the women. By the way, no no text ever says that the the stone was rolled back so that Christ could get out. It's the stone was rolled back so that people could get in. Just throwing that out there. Something amazing has happened, though. The tomb is open for the women. Angels are present. God is at work. God has done something. And Mark then records that they entered the tomb and saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
they're alarmed because this young man is an angel. He's an angel. Mark doesn't say it explicitly, but the other gospel accounts fill in this for us. But even without them, other places in Scripture tell us that angels often appear in the form of men. Angels often dress in white robes. And the parallel in Luke 24 uh, tells us that the angel's robe was dazzling white, similar to what Christ's would have been at the transfiguration. So this is clearly a supernatural being. So the women enter the tomb. They see the angel. They are immediately terrified because this is the common response from coming face to face with a heavenly messenger. Remember that the next time someone tells you that an angel came and visited them. Ask them, how scared were you? If they don't say that they fell to the ground thinking they were going to die, they're probably lying. Uh, just throwing that out there. Right? So the angels, they're terrified of the angel that's there. But then the angel speaks to them. Speaks to them something very comforting in verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news. The angel says, don't be afraid. He's not there to punish them. He's not, not there to judge them. He's there to tell them Jesus is alive. The prophecies have all been fulfilled. Everything Jesus said, he said, they'll kill me. I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over. They will deliver me to a cross. I will be beaten. I will be mocked. I will be killed and I will be back. And here it is. Just as Christ said, the prophecies are fulfilled. The Messiah had died for sinners. As Jesus had said in Mark 10, the Son of Man had given his life as a ransom for many. He had suffered the wrath of Almighty God for sinners and died in their place, but now he is alive. As Isaiah said, the servant of the Lord has been crushed but he is now alive to see the fruits of his labor. The Lord that they loved and had mourned for for the last few days is now alive and well. And notice that the angel wants them to understand that a bodily resurrection had taken place. How do we know that? See the place where they laid him. He's not there anymore, is he? It's a bodily resurrection. The same body that they saw nailed to a cross and breathed his last the same body that they had seen placed in the tomb is the same body that is now alive. The one they saw die and be buried is the exact same one no longer in the tomb. This is no spiritual resurrection as the theological liberals will try to argue. This is no Gnostic resurrection where he looks alive but it's not his body as the Jehovah's Witnesses will argue. But no, Jesus has been truly raised from the dead bodily just as he said. Truly alive in every way. As the psalm says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16.10 He's alive. So the angel then goes and gives them instructions in verse 7. He says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. He tells them, Go and tell the others. Jesus will meet you in Galilee just as he said. Remember that for later. Just like he said. Jesus has plans to reveal his resurrected self to the disciples. They will see him with their own eyes. This is significant because this is not a private resurrection. Jesus will appear to over 500 people, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. 
And he'll do it over the next 40 days, as we learn in the book of Acts. And apparently, this is important to remember, Jesus told the angels to make sure, or the angel to make sure that the women know to tell Peter to come as well. That's going to be a point later. Make sure Peter knows to come. Peter had recently denied even knowing Jesus, but Jesus wants to make sure that Peter is still counted among the number of the disciples. You say, well, how, how do you know that's what Jesus wants? Well, the angel is a messenger of the Lord. So whenever the angel speaks, he's speaking what Jesus told him to speak. And Jesus says, make sure Peter knows to come as well. He's still a disciple. But Jesus is going to meet them. He plans to reveal himself to them in his resurrected glory to encourage them to do the work that he's going to commission them to do. And then we come to our final verse, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Having seen the empty tomb, received a message from an angel, and been informed that their Lord has been raised from the dead, the women leave in terror and amazement. The amazement there is the word we get uh, Greek into English, ecstatic. They were amazed and terrified. Surely we can understand that. This mix of fear and joy. This day is the most monumental day in human history. right? And they have seen and heard things that few people ever had. Few people. They were amazed and they were afraid. And so they run as fast as they can. No doubt, they're running to where the disciples are. They're running to go find Peter and the other disciples and tell them what they have seen and what they have heard. And they were so shocked, so afraid, so amazed at everything that they had seen and heard that they spoke to no one. Now, we know from Matthew 28 that they did eventually speak, so they must have not spoken to anyone on their way, is what Mark is implying here. On their way, they said nothing to anyone. They went straight to the disciples to tell them that Jesus is alive. But there is a lingering question, right? And it's, it's, it's the great question that, that vexes every preacher and interpreter of this passage. Why were they in fear at the end? For they were afraid. That's how it ends. Why end there? Why are they afraid? Why doesn't Mark tell us, like Matthew does at the end, that their fear is mixed with joy? Their fear is mixed with amazement, but that's not exactly the same thing as joy. Matthew says fear mixed with joy. Mark just wants to highlight their fear. Why? Well, throughout Mark's gospel, this is what I think anyway, throughout Mark's gospel, fear is associated with the disclosure of the identity and power of Christ. That's, what's, that, that's the emotion associated. When Jesus reveals himself, people get scared. After Jesus calms the storm, Mark records, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? After he healed the demoniac, the people of the village were afraid, is what Mark says. After Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood, we read, The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. When Jesus walked on water, the disciples all saw him and were terrified. At Jesus' transfiguration, we read of those present, they were terrified. Fear is the common reaction to the disclosure of the identity and power of Jesus Christ. Fear is the common emotion in Mark's gospel when someone realizes they have witnessed God doing something. 
These women were afraid because they realized the significance of everything at the tomb, or at least it was beginning to dawn on them. The Jesus they've known for years died and is back from the dead. This must mean that the Jesus that they've known all this time is the Son of God. He is God. Imagine coming to the, to the very abrupt realization, I've been speaking with and living with and learning from and walking with and touching the Son of God for the last three years. I have been dealing with God incarnate for the last three and a half years. Imagine coming to the realization, you thought he was the Messiah, but he's died, so he must have been wrong. But now you've come to the realization, oh, he was dead, but he's alive. He is indeed the Messiah. Isaiah makes a whole lot more sense now, and that means that the kingdom has come. What does that mean? The world is about to change. Why? Because he shall have dominion. The world is about to change. God has done something. They now understand who Jesus is. Nothing will ever be the same. And so they're afraid. They now realize what they didn't before. Jesus is the Son of God in a more real way than they could have ever imagined. And so Mark's gospel ends. This is a glorious passage, and I believe it is full of encouragement for those who believe what it says. If you believe what it says, it's full of encouragement. For those who believe he is risen... There is encouragement and hope dripping from this passage. And to those encouragements, we now turn. Let's consider what the resurrection says. First, the resurrection says that you are saved. Those who believe on Christ are saved. As the angel said, he is not here. Jesus is alive. To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, the epitaph of Christ's tomb reads, He is risen. He is not here. Nobody else has that written on their tomb. No one else can have that written on their tomb. But praise be to God, this is all that can be written on Christ's tomb, for he is not there. He is alive. As the hymn says, an empty tomb is there to prove my Savior lives. Amen. And the resurrection of Christ is proof. His living is proof that God has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. His resurrection is our assurance that we have been forgiven. The fact that he lives is our assurance that our sins have been done away with. Now, how do we know that? How how do I get there? Because the text doesn't explicitly say that. You're right. I'm digging from Paul's letters in the New Testament. Have you ever wondered why he was raised? Like, we, we, we believe that he was raised, but like, why? Why was that a necessity? Well, the Bible says that death could not hold him. That death had no rights over him, and so death had to give him up. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. Well, if death has no dominion over him, then why did he die? He died because he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And what do we know about sin? As Paul says in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. He became sin, and so he must die. When he took our sins upon himself, sin had dominion over him in a sense, and that he must now die, because that's what sin deserves. Wherever there is sin, there must be death. And so Jesus suffered God's wrath in our place for our sin and died having taken our sins upon himself. But his resurrection shows now that death has no power over him. Why? Because sin 
has no power over him. The sin that he bore on our behalf, our sin has been taken away and atoned for, and therefore it has no more power to kill. The power of sin, as, as one hymn says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. The power of sin has been taken away. It's broken by Christ. And so then the grave had to give him up. He must live because the sin he bore is legally gone and powerless because he's made an atonement, an effectual atonement. The penalty for sin, please hear me, the penalty for sin is gone for those who believe. It's gone. And the proof is that sin and death have no power over Christ for he is alive. Oh, please hear me. Be encouraged by this, Christian. I'm talking about your assurance right now. Be encouraged in this. As long as he is alive, you are saved. As long as he is alive, you are saved. I love, I love logic like that in the Bible. As long as he's alive, you're saved. And what does he say in Revelation 1.18? Behold, I died. Rather, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. What does that mean for you? Brothers and sisters, we are saved forevermore. He will never die again. And sin will never have dominion over you again. That's for your own sanctification. But the penalty for sin will never come upon you. He's taken it away. Another text, Romans 4.25 tells us, Jesus was raised for our justification. Well, how does that work? Well, have you ever considered that Jesus himself was justified in his resurrection? Not justified in the exact same way. Well, you know what? Bear with me. Jesus was declared righteous by God in his resurrection. Was he not? Would anyone, can we object to that at all theologically? No. He was declared righteous in his resurrection because he is righteous. We're legally declared it even though we're sinners. We're, we're justified because of what someone else did, but Jesus was actually just. And so God declares him righteous in his resurrection. He had no sin of his own. He had only perfect obedience to God. He had only perfect righteousness. So then his death, as we know and confess, was for others. It was a substitutionary death to save sinners. And in his resurrection, as we learn in Romans 1, he was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the sinless Son of God. So he's declared righteous in his resurrection because he really is righteous. And now, brothers and sisters, by faith, we are united to him. We're united to him by faith, and what is said of him is now said of us. Just like in a marriage. It's one of the reasons why we are the bride of Christ. We're united to him, and what is his is ours, with the exception of those things that are unique to divinity. But other than that, whatever is his belongs to to us through faith, so then through faith in him, we are declared righteous because he was first declared righteous in his resurrection. He was raised for our justification. By faith in him, his justification becomes our justification. In him, we are counted righteous for he was raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, again, you are saved. You are righteous in the eyes of God for Christ has died for our sins, delivered up for our sins, raised for our justification. I said it last week and I'll say it again. We need reminded of this. Christian, here is your assurance of salvation. Jesus died and was raised. 
Jesus died and was raised. Listen, I'm not saying that your, look, your, your works will have something to do with your assurance, not your justification. You show me someone who's living, in, who's living an impenitent life, not repenting, there's no good works in their life, well, of course they're going to have no assurance of salvation. But please, you cannot look to your works first. They'll never be good enough. Works are evidence that God has done something in your heart. I will not doubt that. Read First John. Oh, but don't look there first. It'll never be good enough. Oh, but if you look, Christ died and Christ is now alive. There is the ground of your assurance because there is found your salvation. Look to him. He is alive and you are saved. If he would have remained dead, there would be no reason for you to hope in him for the forgiveness of sins. But because he lives, we have every warrant and right to believe that we're saved. How do you know you've been forgiven? Because he's alive. <laughs> what, how good is that? How do you know you're saved? Not my works, but because he's alive. And I've trusted in him. How do you know that you have peace with God and need not fear his condemnation? Because he's alive. Take your assurance, Christian. In the empty tomb, God offers you assurance. Look to the risen Christ and know that you're saved. A second encouragement. The resurrection says you don't have anything to fear. I found great, I talked to Bob Knox about this at lunch on Tuesday. I found great encouragement in this point. The resurrection says you don't have anything to fear. Those who seek Jesus who was crucified need not fear anything. This is what the angel said to the women. Verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Matthew makes the point I want to make a bit more explicit. Matthew's account says, do not be alarmed, for I know you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. For I know, the angel says, I know why you're here. Don't be afraid. The women were at the tomb because they loved Christ. They believed in him. They were his disciples even after he was dead and they had no idea he was going to be raised, they still loved him. Again, nobody believed he was going to be raised from the dead, and yet they still loved him. He was their Lord and their master and their friend, and by his grace, they were his friends. And so the angel has only good news for them. He's not come to harm the friends of Jesus. He has come to encourage them and declare that the Lord they so love is alive. They have nothing to fear from the angel. I think there's a principle for us to see here. Those who love Christ, who seek to honor him, those who are his friends need not be afraid. They are friends of the Lord of glory. They are friends of the one who commands the angels and he counts them as his own. My dear brothers and sisters, please be comforted in this. If you seek Jesus who was crucified, if you are his friend by faith, there is nothing for you to fear. You belong to him, and he is the most faithful friend that you will ever have. He is the kindest master that you could ever yoke yourself to. He is the greatest savior for you to trust in. He is the only God who will rule over you and ensure that good is done to you always in the end. There is no fear left for us if we seek Jesus who was crucified. Not ultimately, anyway. There is no fear for those who are friends of Christ. Oh, hear me. Just let me, let me lay these three things out. Those who are friends of Christ, 
who love him, who seek him, who trust in him. We have no slavish fear of God, do we? No. No servile fear. That's not for us. The Savior has taken away your sins. He's given you his righteousness for the judgment. He's washed you clean. You've been adopted into God's family through Christ. There is no fear of condemnation. Why? For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no fear. For we have come to know the one who loves us and gave himself up for us all. And perfect love casts out fear. We have no servile fear of God, but rather we fear him now as sons. Not as slaves who expect wrath for our sins, but as sons. For our friend and Lord Jesus Christ has saved us from the wrath to come. Second, those who are friends of Jesus need not fear death. Why? Because his resurrection is your resurrection. If you're a friend of Christ through faith, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, just as Christ was raised bodily, so also we will one day be raised bodily. Because he lives, death will not have the final word over us, but rather our souls and bodies will be reunited on the last day. Oh, hear me. For those who are friends of Christ, the sting of death has been taken away, has it not? Yes, death is still our enemy. Paul affirms that in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is going to destroy it at his second coming. Death is still our enemy. But its teeth have been taken out. The, the teeth of death are gone. Oh, we may fear the act of dying because pain may be involved. But for those who are friends of Christ, we do not fear death. I may be afraid of how I might die because I don't know and it might hurt. But I am not afraid of death. Because I am friends with the one who conquered it. And now praise God for those who are friends of Christ. Death actually serves as the vehicle that brings you to him. Don't fear death if you're a friend of Jesus. And those who are friends of Jesus need not fear the world. In Christ we have peace with God. As the apostle says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If in Christ, God smiles upon me, what do I care about the frowns of men? If God promises to give me strength to endure, what can man do to me? If heaven is to be my home and eternal life is mine in Christ, what can anyone actually take away from me in the end? Yes, we can suffer many hard things in this life and they can really hurt and be awful and I'm not minimizing them. But I know this, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who are friends of Christ by faith, you need not fear the world. What can they do to you in the end? Those who seek Jesus ultimately have nothing to fear. Please remember that. Because this life is full of things that are going to want to make you, be, going to make you want to be afraid. But if you're a friend of Jesus, if you seek the one who was crucified, if you love the Lord, if you trust him to save you, you don't need to be afraid for you are a friend of the one who conquered death. And that same one will see to it that in the end, Everything is well with his friends. If it was in your power to do good for your friends, you would do it. He's better than you. He's better than you. He's a better friend than you. He will make sure that his friends are taken care of. 
A third thing that the resurrection says is that there's hope for failing disciples. I like to make this point because I'm a big failure. I almost skipped over it and I thought, nah, this is, I'm preaching to me if I'm not preaching to anyone else here. In verse 7, the angel makes sure that the women know to tell Peter, Peter and the disciples, that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. What grace. Have you considered this? Don't, don't just pass over this. What grace. As I said earlier, the angel speaks on behalf of the resurrected Lord. He's a heavenly messenger. And so Jesus wants the disciples and Peter to know that he would meet them. That he's not finished with them. I made this point a month or so ago. At the, when I was preaching on the denial of Christ, or the, Peter's, Peter's denial of Christ. It's the same point here again, but it bears repeating. Jesus says, tell them I will meet them in Galilee because I'm not done. Again, what grace here. That the eleven are not disowned by the risen Christ. How, By the way, just real quick, how unlike us is Jesus? You sold me out. That would be my knee jerk because I'm a sinner. How gracious is he? How full of mercy is he? They had all deserted him in the garden. All had failed. All were hiding in fear and cowardice and unbelief. All had functionally denied Christ. Peter did it explicitly, but Jesus is not finished with them. The risen Christ will forgive and restore them. What grace for the disciples. And what grace is especially shown to the worst of them all. The Roman Catholics often point out, well, they, and Peter, because Peter was the leader of them. No, and Peter, because Peter was the worst of them. He was the worst of them. So you make sure that the one who literally denied even knowing Jesus knows to come. The one with the worst sin among them is reminded to come and meet Jesus as well. Even though he had been the most unfaithful, Jesus still loved him. Oh, sinner, hear me. Jesus beckons you to come and meet him. Not in Galilee, of course, but he calls you and tells you, come and meet me by faith. I'll know this. This text declares to us that the resurrected Christ forgives. The resurrected Christ forgives sinners. He's exalted, yes. He is the reigning king, yes. He is the sovereign over all, yes. He will no longer ever again be lowly. But he is still the forgiving and loving savior. Again, how unlike the kings of the earth is this king of all the kings of the earth. He is high and lifted up, but he is not so exalted that he will not bend down to hear the prayer of a repentant sinner. He is high and lifted up, but he is not so high that he will not come down to the one who seeks him. How kind. He's the merciful God who will come low to the repentant sinner and have mercy on the one who turns to him. He is glorified and glorious, but he is still our Jesus, the great forgiver of sinners. Hear me, are you a failure? Have you sinned greatly this past week? If you sit and think on it long enough, you have. Have you been a coward? Have you indulged your flesh? Have you denied Christ before men in some way? Are you a sinner? I'm talking to everyone now. Good news for you. Jesus forgives sinners. 
Jesus did not come in judgment on his disciples, though he could have. I think that's one of the reasons why they were so afraid when they saw him. He's back, and we all sold him out. He could have come in judgment, but he didn't. He knows that they failed him, and they sinned in their weakness and their sinful self-love, but he also knows that they're his because he chose them out of the world granted them faith and made, him, made them his own. Yes, they're full of sin, but yes, they belong to him. And he will never cast his people out. So Christian, hear me. Your sins are real and they are inexcusable. I'm not making light of them. But I, what I want you to do is look to the risen Christ who is full of mercy and forgiveness and compassion to his weak and wayward sheep. Look to him again and again and again and turn from your sin again and again and turn back to the Lord knowing that he will never cast you away. As I said earlier, he was raised for your justification. He didn't die. He didn't die for you in order to forsake you. His blood's too precious for that, by the way. Even though you're not worth forgiving over and over again, he is. His blood is worth it. And more than that, his love for you is too great for him to forsake you. He loved you before you existed. Return to him. Because he'll restore you like he did the others. Failing saint, lift up your head. He has grace for you just as he did for the eleven. A fourth thing. I only have two more. I have this and then one more. The resurrection says that Jesus is trustworthy. I found great encouragement in this this week. In verse 7, the angel says, there you will see him, just as he told you. I'm with Charles Spurgeon. I think there's a bit of a rebuke in this. A mild one, but a little bit of a rebuke. You came here to anoint a dead body. He told you, or rather he told his disciples in the garden, I'll meet you in Galilee after they crucify me. Why are you here? <laughs> right? Why are you at this tomb? He is risen. And he'll meet you in Galilee, just like he said he would, just as he told you. Again, they did not believe what Jesus had said. But indeed, in spite of their unbelief, Jesus did everything that he said he would do. He's alive. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' resurrection is the vindication of every word he ever spoke. His resurrection is his own vindication because it declares that he was not lying when he said he is the Son of God and Messiah. And as God, we know that he is the truth. There is no lie in him. It is against his nature to lie. Every word of God proves true, which means every word of Christ proves true. Oh, hear that and listen to him. Every word he says is true. Hear me, hear me. Some, some examples here. His warnings of hell and damnation for the unbeliever, true. His threats of damnation for those who forsake him without repentance? True. His declaration that there is only salvation for those who trust in him? True. But not just his warnings and his threatenings. Brothers and sisters, everything he says is true. His promise to save you who believe? His promise to strengthen you and help you to persevere? His promise to preserve your soul his promise to take care of you and meet your needs and be the good shepherd to you 
His promise to be God to you. His promise to hear you when you cry out to Him. His promise that He goes to prepare a place that He wants you to be with Him forever. How good is that one? I said, I said, I, if it wasn't so, I would, would I lie to you? Would I have told you? His promise that wherever He is, you will be with Him one day. His promise that He will return in glory to make everything sad, untrue. There is not one thing that will be left undone. If Jesus has said it, he will do it. How unlike us, by the way. I say I'm going to do all kinds of things that I don't do. And I don't do them because I'm either sinful and I lied, or I'm too weak to do what I had purposed to do. But not him. Everything he says. We can trust him. He did what he said he would do in our text. He said, I will rise. And he did. And that gives us every confidence in the world that he will do everything else that he says. Brothers and sisters, if you ever doubt a word of scripture, I want you to remember the resurrection. If you ever doubt anything the Bible says, remember the resurrection. And then I want you to remember who spoke the words of scripture. What does Paul call it? He calls it the word of Christ. It's the word of God. And the Son of God is God. The one who promised he would die and rise on the third day and then did it is the same one who says everything else to you in the book. You can trust him. Take him at his word. Take him at his word. He's the same one. Again, the logic here makes me laugh because it's encouraging. He's the same one who said, I'll die and I'll come back. And then he did it. Now listen to me very closely. If he can keep that promise to his disciples, is there anything he cannot do? Is there any promise that he cannot keep? Of course not. The one who is mighty enough to conquer death is certainly able to keep the rest of his promise to his people. Christian, your Lord will do everything that he has said. Trust him, for he is risen. A uh, fifth and final thing. The resurrection says that you have a great decision to make. This is a fitting way for us to end our, our time in Mark's gospel. You have a great decision to make. The women were afraid as they left the tomb. And they were afraid because in the empty tomb, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they had come to realize God had done something monumental. Something great about Jesus had been declared in his resurrection. What is it? He is the Son of God. They had been face to face with God in the flesh, and with the resurrection they had begun to realize He is the Son of God, and they believed. And now, being faced with the testimony of the Word of God about Jesus and His resurrection, everyone here must make a decision about Jesus. You must decide what you believe about Him. Who is He? Who do you say that he is? Now, I want to be clear. What you think about him doesn't change the facts. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Your opinion does not undo the truth. He is the only Savior. He is the judge of all men who is coming again. But you must decide for yourself if you believe it. Is he a mere man? Is this whole thing made up? Is he still dead? Or is he the very Son of God? crucified, dead, buried, and raised in glory as King of all kings and Lord of all lords, the only Savior of sinners. 
Who is he? You must answer. Please hear me. Nobody can answer for you. Children, look at me. Your parents cannot answer this for you. They cannot answer this for you. Your friends cannot answer this for you. I cannot answer this for you. You, every one of us, must answer for yourself. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And that brings us to the conclusion of this sermon and this book. And your obedience to what I'm about to say is the most important thing in all the world. And I say this with all the authority of Almighty God. Jesus is the Son of God. This gospel has demonstrated it to us time and again. It was Mark's intention. He says right off the bat, this is what he's about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's purpose is to reveal to us who Jesus is. The word of God declares it with all authority this morning. Jesus is risen. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only Savior. Look back through Mark's gospel. Look at all that he did. Look at all that he taught. Look at his character. Look at his sovereignty over everything. Look at his death for sinners. Look at his resurrection and victory. And say with the centurion at his cross, Truly, this man is the Son of God. He is the incarnate God. He is the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. He is the one who came to save sinners by his death. And he is the one who was raised on the third day. Believe in him. Believe in him. That's the message of Mark. Trust in him. Believe that he is who he says that he is. Believe he's accomplished your salvation. Believe he's the servant of the Lord who saves all who come to him in faith. Believe. And believing, here's the other theme of Mark, be his disciple. There it is. The two big themes of Mark's gospel. Jesus is the son of God. And you must be his disciple. What does Jesus say? Come, follow me. Follow me. Follow him in faith. Be his disciple. If he is the son of God, and indeed he is, then follow him. You must. There is no other option. There's nowhere else to go. Like Jesus says in John 6, he says to his disciples, will you also leave me? And what does Peter say? Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Follow him. There's no other hope for you. Trust him with your soul to save you. Trust him with your life to guide you. Commit yourself to him in all things. Follow the one who conquered the grave. Follow the one who died but is alive forevermore. Oh, please hear me. He is the most faithful. He is the greatest friend. The greatest savior. The very son of God. He is worthy. Go after him with everything that you have. He is worthy. May God grant each one of us to see Jesus for who he is. Confess him. Trust him. And follow him. To the glory of his holy name. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this glorious book that we've studied. God, thank you for this sermon, this text that was preached this morning. 
pray that you would seal its truths to our hearts. Help us to trust the one who is raised. Help us to take our assurance. Help us to follow after him. Help us to seek forgiveness in him because he is willing and ready to forgive. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our all. By your spirit, help us to keep trusting and keep following you. Glorify yourself in us, God. Amen.